Welcome to Heart Matters, a show about all aspects of heart health, brought to you in partnership with the Providence Heart Institute and Boston Scientific. The Providence Heart Institute is a leading integrated network of cardiovascular care with a focus on putting our patients at the heart of everything we do. And we are committed to making a positive difference in every life we touch. As part of that commitment, we are bringing the doctors to you. I'm your host, Dr. John Wagoner, and we're speaking today with Dr. Miles Hassel, an internal medicine physician based in Portland, Oregon, who has also authored a book related to our topic today called Good Food, Great Medicine. Today's episode is Food as Medicine, and we'll be discussing the importance of the food you're eating and how it might affect your heart health. Hello, Dr. Hassel. It's great to be speaking with you today. Yeah, it's good to meet you, and uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, as a first question, can you tell us about yourself and the work that you do at Providence? So I'm uh, one of the two doctors at the Comprehensive Risk Reduction Clinic, which is at St. Vincent Hospital, which is one of the Providence hospitals. And we uh, emphasize traditional internal medicine uh, with, an, with a, um, a sidebar that we expect everybody to want to work with us on lifestyle medicine, meaning working with not just medications and tests and so on, and, and using cardiologists such as yourself, but also working hard with whatever dietary changes and exercise habits and, and weight um, uh, habits that they need to um, pursue in order to really have optimal health. That's fantastic. Is lifestyle is so important. Well, today we're discussing the topic of food as medicine. Uh, can you tell us what that means to you? So when people think of medicine in, in terms of pills and, and capsules, they often, I think, lose track of the fact that the most important medicine that they have at their disposal is actually whatever they're putting in their mouth, that food uh, can improve their health or reduce their health. It can accelerate disease or it can minimize disease. And certain areas are obvious. For example, in a type 2 diabetic who eats a lot of sugar, they can see the results directly that this is probably not a great idea. But I think people fail to see that a, a vegetable deficiency is probably more important than a high blood pressure drug deficiency. They're both important, but they see being non-compliant with their medications in a different light than being non-compliant with diet. And I think that's a big mistake. So we should see our choices every day, every minute actually, um, as being choices that are either going to make us healthier, that life in 10 years will be better, or health or choices that won't. That's so fascinating. You know, since our primary focus today on this podcast is heart health, um, let's discuss the role of nutrition and the food that you eat in relation to your heart. For instance, how big a role does it play in comparison to other factors like genetics, environment, race, ethnicity, and gender, and just general lifestyle? So I think that the the diet, um, and we're going to, because I, the the, the aspects of exercise, for example, sleep, there's many other aspects of lifestyle that are really important, but just concentrating on diet for a moment, then it would appear to be the most important uh, decision that a person with heart disease or at risk of heart disease can make. Because for example, if we look at the lingual heart trial over four years, these are, this was a trial that involved people who had already had a heart attack. So obviously a high risk group, and over four years, those that followed a better diet, the Mediterranean-style diet in this case, had a 70% reduction in further events, a 60% reduction in cancers, and over 50% reduction in death over four years. 
And results like that using diet alone, this was a diet alone study. There's no uh, differences in drugs, no difference in exercise, no difference in smoking even. When you see results like that, you realize, wow, that degree of risk reduction is greater than we see with any drug, any intervention uh, compared to either anything else we can do. So the, pay, the, 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 um, the tools that the patients have at their own hand with a chef's knife and a fork are far greater than anything the rest of us have. If we look at gender, ethnicity, demographics of various kinds, um, the dietary approaches, the omnivorous whole food dietary approaches appear to work right across the board. We have data from South Asia, East Asia, um, uh, Northern Africa, Southern Africa, uh, Israel, Northern Europe, Southern Europe, um, North America, uh, rural America, and they all seem to show the same results. So we think that diet appears to, uh, there's obviously exceptions for any given individual, uh, potentially, like celiac disease would be an example. But nevertheless, it would appear that diet, dietary uh, choices um, are the most important right across the board, the way I read the literature. That's fascinating. You know, there's so much um, data out there about food science, and I like to point um, a lot of my patients to the Mediterranean diet as a, an example of a real attempt at a randomized control trial um, as well, and, and, and that had really excellent results. You know, for, I wanted to ask you also, also, for people that have a family history of heart disease or heart issues, do you generally give the same nutrition advice to those that might actually have heart issues due to lifestyle? Absolutely, because obviously you can have heart disease uh, developing and maybe quite advanced with absolutely no marker unless we've done uh, advanced studies. And so our recommendation is that everybody pretend that they already have heart disease. And when you sort of see it from that angle, then you're going to take a different attitude towards your choices than saying, oh, I'm only going to make those choices once I have heart disease. And I say, well, 20% of the time you die after a heart attack, right? Are you going to wait? Um, and besides, when you make good lifestyle cho choices, you're not just helping your risk of heart disease and stroke. You're also reducing your risk of dementia, diabetes, joint disease, cancer. Cancer. I mean, if you want one thing that's really can make your life miserable when you're 80 years old, it's a slow cancer. So that's why, uh, I mean, it's, uh, we would argue that these approaches actually are the most successful intervention for depression and anxiety. So you're not just trying to reduce heart disease. You're trying to be healthier. That's phenomenal. And that's great that you pointed out how nutrition affects, um, you know, so many aspects of your, of your body and your health. Um, can you tell me what, you know, how you would say poor nutrition affects the heart specifically? So the, the actual mechanisms, I think, are a little sketchy. Um, but if you, if you look at different aspects, for example, better nutrition lowers inflammatory loads through mechanisms that are a little unclear. Good nutrition improves uh, the antioxidant capacity in the blood. So if you don't have uh, chemical change to your cholesterol, for example, it's less likely to become an atherosclerotic molecule. If you have less uh, um, glucose hanging around, then you're going to have less glycation of cholesterol and you're gonna have less atherosclerosis form. If you've got better tissue healing properties and better uh, um, uh, vasoactive properties, your, your blood vessels are gonna be more flexible and they can accommodate changes in, in needs for blood supply you're gonna have better uh, um, neovascular change. So, so your, your body has a capacity over time of building its own bypasses, for example. And the better the, the, the nutrition, it appears uh, with certain, certain things, and including alcohol, oddly enough, 
seem to be involved with, with uh, the ability of the body to create a new uh, vascular pathway to an area in your heart that doesn't have enough blood. Um, if we look, if we bring an exercise, just for an example, uh, that, that's also interesting. If you, if your heart is 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 used to being stretched in a, in a, in the sense of of its ability to really perform, then it also is able to perform better. If something does happen, like you have a heart attack, you're going to lose less heart muscle. So those are the kinds of mechanisms that come to my mind. I didn't know if you had some other thoughts there. No, that's that's right on target there. You know, we, we hear a lot about nutrients in, in our diet, and I was wondering what you would say, what nutrients play a role in strengthening the, hearts and, uh, the heart, and, and what would be your pick for the most important nutrient for the heart? I don't think we can answer that. Um, if you look at the nutritional patterns that have been shown to, in randomized controlled trials to reduce heart disease, and then you sort of look into they uh, try to break that down and to say, hey, if this study was successful, which nutrients were responsible for that success? I would argue that we've not been able to really nail that down. And what we can say is that certain food combinations seem to reduce heart disease and, and other disease risks. Whereas nailing it down to particular nutrients is really, I think, dangerous and feeds into the whole pharmaco-industrial complex way of looking at this because then people say, oh, I better take a resveratrol trial tablet. And whenever we do that, it seems to me that whenever we do that, I can't, I can't think of any exceptions offhand. Uh, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the vitamin E thing in the 80s and 90s, but there was a lot of pressure to take vitamin E because it was the most important nutrients because of the antioxidant and so on. And then they did randomized controlled trials and it didn't work. If anything, it was probably harmful. And so my thinking is if we try to be too uh, reductive on this, we're actually going to, if we try to break it down to individual nutrients, we're going to get into trouble because that's, I don't think, where the uh, literature leads us. So important for that clarification. So thank you very much for that. Um, do you think it's possible for people to reduce or eliminate the use of some common heart medications by making some important dietary changes? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so uh, one, uh, if, if we look sort of look at the whole blood sugar metabolic syndrome group of people, so these are people who tend to have higher blood sugars, um, bigger waistlines, um, and uh, higher blood pressures, higher triglycerides. If we reduce their carbohydrates a lot, we can often eliminate their need for diabetes medications. We can often reduce or even eliminate their high blood pressure medications, and they feel better. Um, in some cases, especially in primary prevention, I think some people can probably get off statins. Um, we're, we don't tend to do that in secondary prevention because the statins have a lot of different effects apart from just lowering cholesterol. So we suspect that they have a stronger role in secondary prevention or in people who've already had a heart event. Um, and so we we're, we're tend to be reluctant to stop the statins in that group. But in terms of primary prevention, if people are, don't have a really striking risk otherwise, then we've seen LDL reductions using diet alone in committed patients. So this is not easy to do. What I'm about to say is not easy for these patients to do, but if you're there really committed, we can see LDL reductions of 70%, excuse me, 50%. I'm sorry, I, I was edging there. In 50%, um, when people just hit everything right, especially the water-soluble fibers. Um, is that common? No. What is common is 20 to 25% LDL reduction. And so in many cases in primary prevention, that's, that's very reasonable to do. 
so exciting. I, yeah, I tell my patients that one of my favorite things to do in my practice is start removing medications from their list as they start making healthy lifestyle choices, weight loss, uh, exercise, reducing alcohol, quitting smoking. And we can just see the numbers change right in front of us. And, and so it's so satisfying. Along those lines, it's kind of interesting out of how many patients actually get themselves into trouble if they don't stop their high blood pressure medicines. Um, we recently had uh, a guy, he, um, he fainted and, and uh, had a head injury um, because he'd suddenly gotten excited about losing weight. Um, I, think, I think there might have been a romance involved. And, um, and he, so he loses 30 or 40 pounds. He's on three different blood pressure drugs. And, he, and, and he, every time he gets up, he, he gets lightheaded and he didn't make a connection until he finally fainted. <laughs> so um, so these, some of these people need to um, be conscious of that. And uh, some of our uh, diabetes drugs can be dangerous in this setting as well. If people take lifestyle seriously, they really need to coordinate closely with their physicians in order that they don't actually start having harm from the medications that they're on. Thank you for pointing that out. I agree with that completely. So um, yeah, it's always going to be another a romance or a, or a class reunion, right? For the, the motivator there. Or wedding. <laughs> How can people transition to a lifestyle that primarily uses food as medicine while still using Western allopathic medicine as well? Uh, I think the first step is to say, hey, my lifestyle choices are actually more important than my doctor's choices. I am my most important physician. Then you just start making one change after another. What should I have for breakfast? What should I have for lunch? What should I have for dinner? What snacks can I eat? Um, how do I bring my family into this? So the whole household's doing the same thing because it's real pain if you're the only one doing it. How do I get in the way of certain temptations and be coordinating with your physician if there's any risks? The main risks that we see are people who are on blood, blood pressure lowering agents or blood sugar lowering agents who then can actually hurt their brain by staying on those medications. Um, and by doing all that, there's actually no conflict. I would actually argue that diet is actually the cornerstone of Western medicine. So I don't see it as a non-Western, uh, you know, Hippocrates, I think it was, it was a strong component, uh, proponent of, of diet and he's about as Western as you get, I think. Um, so I don't see that there's any true conflict between the two, except insofar as what pharmaceutical agents should I still be on? Yeah, fantastic. I think I think the quote was uh, "Let food be your medicine." I think was the original. Um, you you alluded earlier to uh, one of my favorite diets, the Mediterranean diet. I wanted to ask you specifically for our listeners: what what are the long term benefits of following a Mediterranean diet? Can you review that for us? So the Mediterranean diet uh, is is fairly unique in the sense that we have both randomized control trial data that's quite robust as good as you can probably get with nutrition, which is a tough area to study, as well as pretty robust uh, epidemiologic studies. In addition, we have all this observational stuff going back, uh, excuse me, hundreds of years, um, concentrating really in, in the uh, seven countries trial in the 50s probably that really started the current um, research off. So the long-term benefits of, of the Mediterranean-style diets that we see both in randomized controlled trials and extensive observational studies is reduction of heart disease, stroke, dementia, uh, type 2 diabetes, better control if you do have diabetes, less high blood pressure, less depression and anxiety, fewer broken bones. So it actually, for whatever reason, it seems to reduce broken bones and we really don't know why. Um, and probably the big one in my view 
is the quite striking reductions in cancer. We're talking in the 50 to 60 to 70% region reductions in premature cancer. And finally, some people might be interested in the fact that there's reduced uh, total mortality. Now that doesn't mean you're not gonna die. It just means over the course of these studies, you had fewer deaths. And so basically it means that you're probably gonna live longer, but more importantly, you're gonna live without as much disease so that when you die, you kind of die healthy in a sense. And so, although that sounds really weird, um, if you're somebody who follows a whole food Mediterranean style diet or something approaching that, and you're exercising, and you're not smoking, and you're not too chubby, you're, you may well be part of that blessed group of people that keel over at 85 or 95 or 100 without having had to experience a whole lot of, of misery uh, from people like uh, Jack and me. So exciting. I, I um, and, and it can be so delicious too. You know, I, I grew up um, very much on a meat and potatoes Midwest sort of diet. And, um, you know, as I started trying to live up to the advice I was giving to my patients, I started realizing how delicious the food really is when you follow this. Uh, it takes a little work, it takes a little practice, um, a, a little little dedication, but you start really loving the food and, and your the quality of your life just improves so much, so. And Austin, I think other food doesn't taste as good as it used to. That's exactly right. But donuts, donuts and bacon still taste pretty good to me. <laughs> well, you're in the city with voodoo donuts. So, yeah, that's. <laughs> <laughs> hey, are there other food plans that you would recommend as well, Dr. Hassel? My impression is that any traditional whole food omnivorous diet probably is successful. And I, that to get there, you look at things like Interheart, uh, which is. So, I'm going to just name some some words that represent big studies, big reliable studies, and pure interheart, the nurse's health study, and the physician's health follow-up study out of Harvard. Um, these all seem to point to this, um, uh, this combination of traditional diets, whole food diets, that are associated with dramatically better health outcomes across every, every area of medicine, not just heart disease. And so I doubt if we need to in, in future years, I doubt if we'll be needing to talk about the Mediterranean diet as much as we do now, because I think we'll be seeing more studies looking at just traditional whole food diets. You know, we have a lot of diets traditionally that were considered heart healthy, that were focused really highly on low fat foods. Can you tell us why that may not be the best diet and describe how healthy fats play an important role in heart health and overall diet? Yeah, so healthy fats are really essential to all kinds of areas of your body's uh, healing and repair mechanisms, signaling uh, mechanisms within your body, which relates to immunity. Immunity then relates to things like inflammation. Inflammation appears to be a key factor in heart disease and stroke and so many other chronic health processes. So when you follow a diet that's lower in, in fat, you're often, almost always, eating a diet that's higher in processed foods and higher in processed carbohydrates, both of which uh, are, are emphasize more inflammation and poor immune function. More importantly is the outcomes data. If you can, there's, there's a, a recent study called Cordioprev, um, which has been looking at uh, people assigned to a low fat, a healthy low fat diet, not, not just any old low fat diet, but the healthiest low fat diet they could design, or a healthy Mediterranean style diet where people had 35% or more of their calories as fat. Um, and so this is, a, a, this is a randomized control trial and they're looking at things like uh, development of atherosclerosis and that are clogging in these arteries. 
And when people were on the higher fat Mediterranean style diet, you had significantly less clogging of arteries. You also have happier people because they're eating more interesting food. But um, that's, it's, it's very, very interesting that the, these fats are really integral to good health. So time to get some clarity on this, Dr. Hassel. Let's talk about fats and cholesterol, because I think this is something that's very confusing for people. Um, what's the difference between saturated fats, trans fats, and healthy fats? And, and how do these help affect our heart health? So if I could take trans fats to start with. So trans fats are, um, now there are naturally occurring trans fats, they're just, they're rare. Um, so I'm only, when I use the word trans fats, I'm going to be referring to trans fats that are associated with commercially uh, produced products using hydrogenation. So hydrogenated oil. So if you only take one thing away, if you see hydrogenated oils on ingredients list or partially hydrogenated, perhaps even worse, don't use them. Um, but what it refers to is, is chemical change within the, um, um, molecule, the fat molecule, which is different than humans ever been exposed to. And we have data from the, the British were first pointing this out with margarines in the 1970s, that these increased heart disease. And for some reason, it would, their, their advice was ignored. And it wasn't really paid much attention to, I would argue, until the late 90s, early 2000s here, that, that these fats, um, these hydrogen oils are really bad for you. So I think hydrogen oils containing trans fats uh, are, are the group that we can say these are bad. Saturated fats and whole foods, I think it's harder to condemn. Um, the data are all over the place. Um, and especially if you look at just randomized controlled trial data, it's really hard to say that saturated fats in traditional foods. So I'm, I'm not talking about saturated fats in the form of Crisco. I'm talking about fa saturated fats in the form of traditional foods, um, uh, such as meats, fishes, and, and oils and things, um, I, uh, nuts. I don't think that we can be sure that they're bad for you. And so we actually don't make a point of them in our practice um, if they're part of a, of a, of a whole food. Um, and then, and then when, you, so when we think of healthy fats, we think of one as really standing out, and that's extra virgin olive oil. The data for extra virgin olive oil is strong and getting stronger for heart disease, for cancer, for mood disorders. And so... If there's, there's one fat that we think can be called healthy fat, we would argue it's extra virgin olive oil. Other fats in traditional foods, nuts, animal products, dairy, um, uh, we would argue are probably all healthy in, 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 the, in, the, in the setting of a traditional diet, of an omnivorous diet, that hydrogen oils should be avoided. Um, and, and so that, that gets rid of the trans fat issues. Yeah, I like to tell my patients that, you, you know, we do see um, changing messages coming from the medical field as we get more information, um, as we have more more data in front of us. Um, and and that's that shouldn't be disconcerting, but that we will continue to evolve that our message as we get more information. So that's how science works. Yeah. Hey, would you mind telling us the latest recommendation from the dietary guidelines for intake of dietary cholesterol? I believe it's the American Heart Association um, Science Advisory Committee from 2020 actually said that they don't have a strong recommendation for dietary cholesterol anymore. Um, and so we follow that, that in our practice, saying that if you're eating a whole food omnivorous diet with the cholesterol coming in the form of food that you cook at home, I don't think that we can make a strong case against eating uh, those, those foods. And so one that comes up often is um, cholesterol in, in egg yolks, because that's probably the single biggest cholesterol bomb we've got. And we would argue that if you go out to about 14 eggs a week, 
that the bulk of the data would suggest no harm from that and possible benefit. And so we tend to not um, condemn cholesterol in the diet, but say that the cholesterol-containing foods should be in the context of a, a diet that's heavy in fruits, vegetables, beans, and grains, which don't have any cholesterol. When you have a diet that's high in fruits, vegetables, beans, and grains, you're automatically limiting how much total fat, total cholesterol, total saturated fat you're getting in because your stomach can only handle so much. Um, in addition, when you're eating a diet that's high in fruits, vegetables, beans, and grains, you also have this interesting aspect in the gut where those fats and cholesterol molecules are actually altered because of all the different chemical processing that occurs in your small intestine and large intestine. And then the, you've got these fibers that actually carry a lot of these things out of your system. Um, and so it, it, in, a, in the context of a whole food, high fiber, vegetable heavy uh, diet, then these fats don't seem to become as important. I, I kind of hear in your message too a, a subtext of moderation and balance as well, I, I think. Can I say one more thing on that? Sure. And that is that in, in the sense of moderation and balance, it also reduces the burden on our patients of trying to follow rules. Because what was happening, as you probably recall in the 90s, is people were running out and eating snack well cookies, which were horrible food. Um, and basically eating hydrogen oils and, and sugars, I'm, I'm exaggerating for the purpose of illustration, in order to get rid of the cholesterol and saturated fat in their diet. And that was really the wrong advice to be giving people. And so if I can say to people, hey, you know, you can have your eggs, you can have your beef, you can have just, just not too much of it, then it, I think it makes their, their decisions and their family's decisions much easier. And that's that's really reflective of the diet that they tend to eat in the Mediterranean region as well. So that's uh, that's great. Um, we know and we're told that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Uh, what would you say would be an easy, heart healthy breakfast? So if I could use myself as an example, uh, this morning I had two eggs with a whole tomato all sauteed together in a frying pan with olive oil, um, so that and salt and pepper, some hot sauce. Um, and so I had my eggs uh, and my my vegetable and tomato, and it was a whole tomato. So you know, we we don't in our household we don't let anybody get away with just a you know a little sprig of parsley. Um, and then uh, I really like bread. Um, however, bread is a source of, of of great waistline development materials. And so we argue that if you're going to eat bread, you probably should get in the habit of making bread yourself. You're going to save money. It's going to make your house smell fantastic, and it's a far better product than a commercially available uh, bread. So, so I had a slice of toast with my two eggs and, and tomato. I tend to alternate that with uh, oat groats, uh, barley groats, and rye groats. So these are whole grains. I cook them together overnight in the crock pot, throw in some uh, almonds or walnuts, um, uh, berries, blueberries, blackberries, whatever we can get our hands on, a little bit of honey. Um, some people would put cream or milk in there as well. I don't. Some people would put salt in there, I don't, but, um, and that's that's a whole grain cereal. Now, <clears throat> oat, oat groats and rye groats and, and barley groats, that's pretty hardcore. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a hardcore food guy. Um, and so for some people, it'd be, they'd find it easier to do things like uh, seven grain cereals, um, steel cut oats, rolled oats, which I don't think are as good as, as oats, but they're still good food. But I would encourage people to always have a fruit or vegetable with their breakfast. Don't forget that that component. And if you have some fat with your breakfast, such as in the form of nuts, it's going to stick to your ribs longer. That's great. You um, 
And those are those are great foods that you mentioned. Um, and you mentioned earlier about the value of, of extra virgin olive oil as well. I was wondering, in your opinion, what are maybe your top five heart healthy foods that everyone should be incorporating into their diet? So can, if I could include fruits and vegetables as one of those. So we argue that people should have fruit or a vegetable with every meal and snack. Their whole diet should be built around fruits or vegetables. And when you do that in food, foods and seasons, you can usually keep it pretty uh, economical, especially if you aren't eating out. Um, second to that would be the whole grain bean group. Um, from the epidemiologic literature, I would argue that whole grains are the single most important food for health uh, in terms of outcomes data. So whole grains of all kinds, if, even if you have celiac disease, most grains don't have any gluten in them. So it, you're actually not limited. If you don't want grains, you can do beans and lentils. Uh, so that'd be probably group two. I think extra virgin olive oil in, deserves a place of its own um, because of the unique data surrounding that. And I really don't think that we can recommend the other highly processed commercially available oils, avocado oil, um, soy oil, canola oil, all those. They're all extremely highly industrially processed foods. And they've all got a lot of major question marks over them and a couple of randomized control trials that are really worrisome. So that'd be the third. The fourth and fifth would, would probably be, I think fish deserves a category of its own, fish and shellfish, um, because of the unique fats and the unique oils and the unique epidemiology behind them. And then I guess I would include all the other animal products, um, poultry, beef, um, and dairy uh, as my fifth group that I think are valuable for health. They certainly add a lot to flavor. They make your, your um, dinner table much more socially acceptable. Um, and they're part of pretty much almost every uh, traditional diet and they're part of every group. So if, if you look at the epidemiology and you look at in any group of people, who are the healthiest in that group? You always see these people who are in the omnivorous dietetic category. I, you know, I want to, I want to also, I want to, I think I know what you're going to say on this, but I want to know, um, should, should our listeners be using butter or margarine on their toast? There's so many options and it's really hard to know what's best. I'd like to start that answer slightly obliquely. Michael Pollan once wrote a little line that said, went like this. If it's from a plant, eat it. If it's made in a plant, don't. Margarine's made in a plant. It's been stripped of all its nutrients. It's highly processed reservoirs oils um, that, that have to be processed at very high temperatures and pressures in order to get, get them to where they are. And although nowadays you don't see trans fats in margarines because they've gotten some more clever chemical engineering, who knows what else is in there that we don't even know about. It took a long time for us to discover trans. It took us probably 80 years to find out about trans fats. And it took us another 20 years to even pay attention to that. So whereas butter is one of those traditional foods, and in our practice, we have this policy that if something has historical precedent, it's probably okay. People have been eating butter for the entire recorded history of humankind. It's hard for us to overlook that, and I don't know of any strong argument that can be made against butter, except I wouldn't see it as me being a, your dominant fat in your diet. That should probably be extra virgin olive oil if you can get your hands on any. Um, butter should be a secondary thing, but on toast, nothing beats it. <laughs> Olive oil on toast is pretty good too, I have to say. Okay, all right. And <laughs> do you guys do you ever use uh, you know the better butter combination? You know, the olive oil butter combination. I have used that before. Yeah, and it can be. It can be. 
flavorful as well. Yeah. Because I think the butter butter concept for a lot of people who are a little nervous about butter, um, where you so it's half olive oil, half butter, or some combination like that. It's actually easier to spread, um, uh, dampens out the saturated fat content, and it's got a it's got an interesting role to play. You you mentioned the processed foods and how that they can be so detrimental in our diet, um, and a lot of processed foods come in our snacks uh, that are available to us uh, so ubiquitously. What what would you say are some easy heart healthy snacks? So the standard rule that we suggest people follow is start with a fruit or vegetable and then add something that has fat and protein. And so an easy example for this would for me would be a banana or an apple and a handful of nuts. Um, cucumber slices with some peanut butter or cheese. Um, and if, for example, in my car, there's usually some uh, dried prunes and some almonds. And the reason it's those two is it means that I always have something that'll dampen down my, my fervor for food if I'm, if I'm passing something that could be really attractive, like a fast food joint when I'm hungry. And so, and uh, and dried prunes and, and almonds can survive in a in a warm car for quite a while before they go bad. So uh, the the issue there is always know what you're going to have and have it nearby. And so at home we're always going to have some cucumbers, uh, some celery, a celery peanut butter is another really good one. Um, but you need to have something that's going to be with you when you're out and about. And that's usually going to be raw nuts. For most of us, it's going to be raw nuts and either a fruit that can survive a purse or a backpack, like an apple, um, or or some vegetable slices. You know, speaking of out and about, you know, it, I think it's easier to control the food that we eat when we're eating at home. But what about in social situations where we're not always in control of what's going on our plate. You know, can you share some strategies uh, with our listeners to make dining out and social engagements easier to navigate? So I think there's two ways to handle the social circumstances. One is to say, hey, this is a treat. This is a special occasion. I'm going to do whatever tastes good. And I think that's very reasonable if it's not common. Uh, we suggest people don't have more than about one treat meal per week. That's our rule of thumb. We don't have any good science behind it, but that's our guesswork. The second is, is this, this is especially for people who, because of their social circumstances, they might be in sales, who knows what they're, what's involved, or they're eating out a lot more. They, uh, there's a couple of strategies for that. One is to, whenever possible, um, bring your own food. So, for example, let's pretend that you're in a workplace where you have a lunch meeting all the time. Well, bring your own lunch. Um, don't, don't, take the, the, don't take the poor quality, cheapo, uh, lowest, uh, lowest bitter um, lunch that they're providing. Um, the other thing to do is to always say, what is the meat and vegetable? What is the protein and vegetable choice here? And so often that in, a, in a restaurant, that's often going to be from the appetizer menu. Um, and, and sometimes you just have to default to say, this is a treat because there are no good options. Is there a reliable thing that you like to order when you're out and about? When I'm uh, out and about, we don't don't actually eat out all that much in our, you know, we're a food family, so we don't really eat out that much. But when we do, uh, we tend to just say this is a treat. Uh, we went for, I, my son and I went for a long bike ride last night. It was a beautiful evening. Um, stopped outside, had a hamburger on a, on a patio outside a place. It was a gorgeous, might be the last gorgeous evening we have. Um, and uh, he had pizza, I had hamburger, you know, that was a treat meal. Will we have something like that? 
probably not again for another few weeks. Um, and so, uh, so for me, um, having food out more often than not is going to be a treat. That's great. You know, it occurs to me that there's a common belief that eating healthfully is very expensive. Um, do you find this to be true for your patients? And can that be a limiting factor in why some people may rely more on less expensive processed foods? Um, we run into this a lot in our, uh, when we're speaking at conferences. We actually don't run into this with our patients who have limited financial means. Um, and that's because when we're speaking head to, uh, you know, face to face with them, we can point out that fruits, vegetables, beans, and grains are cheaper than anything they're going to get out. Um, whole grains and beans are dead cheap. And if you've got a big family, you can buy them by the 25 pound bag, um, maybe less than a dollar a pound and a pound of grains feeds you for quite a while. So I would argue that if you can get people to learn to cook at home, they're going to save money unless they decide they need to live on halibut and ribeye. Um, but if you concentrate on fruits, vegetables, beans, and grains as the core of your diet, you're gonna save money. Do you, what impact would you say food insecurity has on heart, uh, health and how can medical professionals help to bridge that gap? You know, you, you alluded to some of the education that you're giving to your patients as well. Um, but do you have any specific nutrition and heart health tips that you give to your patients who are perhaps food insecure? Yeah, so first of all, we we um, try to get them to say, what can I do, not what can't I do? What do I like, not what don't I like? And we start from that. Next, um, let's say I've got somebody who says, you know what, I live in an area that actually doesn't have any health food stores around. I don't have the money to go to health food stores and I don't have a car. So what we say to them is, okay, do you have any friends of yours who have a share and interest in food? And they usually do. Find somebody with a car and y'all pile in and you go to some big box grocery store. Like where I live, that, that one would be Winco. We would, add, uh, we would argue that Winco, uh, which is a, a cut price uh, supermarket here, is probably your best source as a health food store. Go to the bulk section, get your whole grains, beans. Their vegetables are pretty good. Um, you don't need to eat a lot of meat. You don't need to eat a lot of cheese. Um, and we often teach them how to buy in quantities that keep the price down as well. Places like Costco can be helpful. What we want to do is be thinking positively, be thinking like a victor, not like a victim. And when we're doing that, we're going to be looking for solutions. And you're going to say, okay, so my health is non-negotiable. Within the constraints I have, what do I do? And that usually means fruits, vegetables, beans, and grains, vegetables in season, modest amounts of the more expensive animal products and cook at home and enjoy cooking learn to enjoy cooking learn to use use spices and salt and pepper to, to make everything taste good because remember you your taste buds might be tuned to the taste buds of the fast food people with lots of weird fats lots of salt lots of other spices and these these foods are designed by food technologists to sell you the, the food technology families of, of, of chemists and, and, uh, and, and scientists aren't out there trying to help your, your health. So you've got to retrain your taste buds to enjoy foods that you cook at home. If your friends want to go out and, and have, a, have a fast food meal, say, why don't we stay home and do a stir fry? Open a can of tuna, chop up a bunch of vegetables, get some olive oil, salt, pepper, and just toss something together in a pan. And you're going to 
I think you're going to love it the second time you do it. Maybe not the first time. <laughs> well, what do you find in your practice is the most common reason people fail to continue following healthier eating habits after they try starting out with those? I think there's a couple of things. One is often the results aren't as immediate as they want. So, for example, if, if a major issue for them is weight loss and they don't start losing weight, then they say, this doesn't work. And we say, hey, good food works, even if, even if you're not losing weight. Now we need to work on quantities and that kind of thing. But even if you don't lose weight, if that's your problem, if you're eating better quality food, your system is still going to work better. So that's, that's one reason why people fail, I think. Secondly, it's, it's work. Um, there's no way you can get around the fact that chopping vegetables and, and preparing meals takes thinking, it takes planning, and it takes effort. And something else has to go. We usually recommend that if they have a thing called a TV or a computer in, in, in their in neighborhood, uh, then they pull the plug out of the wall and they just take some wire cutters and cut the end of the, off that plug. And suddenly they're gonna have, you know, if you don't have a TV to look at or any um, enter, screen entertainment, suddenly you're gonna have more time to cook. Um, so, so the time is involved. Uh, and then thirdly is, what do I do? And if, if I apologize for mentioning my book, Good Food, Great Medicine, but the reason we, we wrote that book was to try to help people who don't necessarily know where to start, give them some ideas about where to start. This isn't that hard, but it does. It is a learning process. That's great. What what did family and friends that are supporting somebody that needs to make major life changes? You know, what what would you what would you recommend um, as the best ways that they can support their loved ones? So first of all, think about what what does your loved one like. And then start there. Don't don't start imposing your own taste on them. Um, secondly, cook with them. There is no quality time quite like time. So you're not going to do them much of a favor if you bring them over a casserole. You're especially not going to do them a favor if they bring them over a casserole. They end up feeding the cat because they don't like it or the dog. Um, so. Go over and find things that you think they're going to like, that they think that they're going to like, and try it out. Um, I, I keep going back to the idea of stir fries because you can almost always modify a stir fry for just about every any taste. Um, and I think using that combination and gradually increasing, in, including foods. I had a sister who married a guy who really had he didn't really know what good food was, and she just made little tiny changes all the time. And so after a couple of years. He was eating a whole food, healthy Mediterranean style diet, and he didn't even notice that he had changed in his, all of his taste. So don't try to, um, you don't have to, you don't have to change everything at once. You do have to change, but you're going to change in little, little bits. And so, for example, when we're counseling people who really need major lifestyle change, this is primarily people with weight problems, heart problems, or type 2 diabetes. Um, we sort of pick one or two things every visit. Okay, work on this read up a little bit about that. Um, and the common question we have is, what do you really like? And would this, in your opinion, be a suitable alternative to that? So for example, let's say I have Cheerios every morning for breakfast. Well, do you, would you like an egg scrambled with spinach? Do you think you'd like that? Do you think you'd like leftovers from the night before uh, in, a, in a stir fry form? Do you think you'd like to have rolled oats with some walnuts in it? And, and just get them to talk to us. I guess people call this motivational interviewing sometimes. Get them to tell us what they like and start there. Too often, I think people try to impose their own taste on people 
or their own fairly extremist. Like I'd, I'd be a food extremist in anybody's mind, I think. But I'm not trying to impose my food extremism and get everybody to eat oat groats. Um, I think it'd be great if they did, but that's not, that's not my point. I'm trying to find out what they enjoy and can I find a healthy alternative to that? Just for the record, I love oat groats. I didn't know anything about them. I grew up on rolled oats and probably packaged oatmeals. But when I actually experienced uh, them, uh, I, I, uh, I'm a total convert as well. So, well, One of the I, interesting things, can I just comment on that? Yes, please. Your oat groats are dramatically cheaper than any other form of oat. You know, so if, if we're talking about people who, who really need to watch their food budget, and there's a lot of people that need to watch their food budget, these whole grains um, in the true whole grain form, in the groat form, um, are really inexpensive. I use a rice cooker to help them help cook them as well, and it, and it really is no no more trouble than than regular oatmeal. So, yeah. Uh, Doctor Hassel, is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to make sure our listeners know about our topic today, food as medicine? One thing that we like to comment on is that food is pretty important part of of your overall health. And we roughly estimate, just rule of thumb, that exercise might be almost as important. And so whenever we're thinking about food, we always like to say to people, you know, what is your daily exercise program? And if you're not doing anything, would you give me one minute morning and night? Because you can give me one minute morning and night, some exercise as well. And we sort of talk about that. And just as we try to say food is medicine, we try to say exercise is medicine. And so you could also sort of extend that and say exercise is food. And so uh, that would probably be one factor. And I do like to emphasize the fact that I'm not sure you can really employ food as medicine if you don't cook. Very good points. Oh, can I say one more thing? Sure. Sorry. Um, cooking ahead. So we had one guy, he was a HR professional, single guy living alone who needed to lose 40 pounds. Uh, he's a marathon runner. Exercise wasn't his problem. So we sort of talked about that and he said, you know, I really don't want to cook every day. And we said, oh, well, let us know what you come up with. So anyway, a couple of weeks later, we get up with this photograph. He cooked all his meals. So Sunday afternoon, every Sunday afternoon, he just cooked. And he would lay out 21 meals in, in little uh, glass lock containers. I don't know how much he spent on those. Um, he's, he, he cooked all his meals ahead and froze them and uh, would take out. So every day he would take out one or two days of, of meals. And that took care of his food problems. It, it took care of his uh, all of his planning issues. And so you have to cook, I think, but you don't need to cook for every meal. There's nothing wrong with leftovers, and there's various clever ways that different people come up with using leftovers so that they take some of the burden of the food preparation off. Yeah, and I'll also point out uh, personally the uh, use of a slow cooker, um, throwing the ingredients in in the morning can be, and then you have a hot meal waiting for you when you come home and you're tired at the end of the day and may not feel like cooking. It's great. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Can I add one more thing? Sure. Bring your own lunch. <laughs> we have a we have a rule of thumb that says if we don't talk our patients into bringing their own lunch to work, they're probably not going to be successful. Very good point. Thank you for joining us today on this important topic on Heart Matters. We look forward to continuing the important conversation on heart health and wellness with more experts from Providence in future episodes. 
Make sure you listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our missions, programs, and services, go to Providence.org. And for more information on Boston Scientific, visit bostonscientific.com. And please remember, the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening. And remember, at Providence, we see the life in you. Thank you.